0: This week, we have another special guest who also is a podcast host, John Hoda of My Favorite Detective Stories and How to Rocket Your PI Business. I feel like an underachiever only doing one podcast, Great Women in Fraud. He is also a popular guest on other investigation podcasts. We talk about coaching, mindset, and learning as business owners. It is so great to talk with another solopreneur who understands investigations and the business of being a PI. And after we recorded the episode, I had the absolute pleasure of being on John's podcast, which will come out in early June, I believe. We talk fraud and TV shows. Let's get started because John is a busy guy. Remember, he's got more than one podcast. Welcome to another week of great women in fraud and this week we're going to have a great man great dude like just great person in fraud, and that's John Hoda and I'm again, as always honored to have such amazing guests. So, John, um, you know, some people might say that you and I compete. And I don't think so at all. I think we add to each other. So why Mm -hmm. don't you give your background? And um, you've been doing the podcast thing way longer than me. And I just, we're not competitors. I think we are, we're colleagues completely.
1: I don't disagree with you. And thank you very much for having me on the show, Kelly. I certainly appreciate this opportunity. Uh, My days as a fraud investigator go back uh, to 1978. So just to tell you that when dinosaurs walked the earth, I was out there with them as a fraud investigator. Um, I had been a police officer working uh, a lot of nights and weekends and holidays on a small suburban police department outside of Philadelphia. And I had an opportunity to work for one of the original insurance investigation companies, uh, Equifax, way back in the day. And after a brief stint with an insurance company, I then worked for what was then the Insurance Crime Prevention Institute, which was a forerunner to the National Insurance Crime Bureau uh, when they uh, melded, merged uh, ICPI with NATB. And then after that, I was uh, SIU uh, with a couple different insurance companies, multinationals. And during that time period, I looked and saw that I was vending out so much money to private investigators to do insurance fraud work that uh, in September of 1997, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Independent Special Investigations was created. And uh, I created a company that ostensibly was going to be a super regional from Bangor to Baltimore. And uh, we were going to do insurance fraud investigations in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic States. So that was my start. Also, I'm a a certified fraud examiner uh, through the Association of uh, uh, Certified Fraud Examiners. And uh, I've always had some sort of a fraud case bubbling around on my desk during my various iterations. So that's my very quick story.
0: Well, but you left out your podcast.
1: Oh, well, uh, the podcast, thank you, uh, came about about, uh, two and a half, three years ago when I decided that I wanted to interview investigators to tell me about their favorite detective stories, hence the term, my favorite detective stories. And uh, it was a wonderful podcast starting out. I I got people from all uh, types of, all walks of life in the investigative community, Uh, even a few amateur uh, investigators with great stories. And I also was interviewing people that not only were they great investigators, but they also had written about their exploits. So they had true crime books or some type of book related to their investigations. And I found myself being more drawn to those people that wrote as well. And my favorite detective stories now is almost exclusively with uh, crime writers, uh, fiction crime writers or crime writers talking about the stories that they would like to tell so that's how it worked um 125 127 episodes there uh i air every other week with that i also have another podcast which is how to rocket your private investigations business which where i talked with private investigators specifically about the business of their business and how they got better at doing the business and how they uh, learn from their own mistakes and how to get better at uh, marketing and, and generating more income for their for their work and expanding their business. You mentioned to me that you had just listened to a podcast of mine uh, with Jan Banner, Barefoot. And uh, she's a perfect example of somebody that's been working really hard over a long period of time and incrementally growing her business and her business at and realizing also that she doesn't know all the answers herself and had a higher extra help um, in the areas that she wasn't uh, completely uh, knowledgeable about or or wanted to handle. She off-boarded quite a bit of work to uh, other people that are much happier doing it. So those are my two podcasts, and I love doing it every week. And in about another hour, I get to to interview a wonderful investigator. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that.
0: Uh, yeah. No podcast fade for you. And I was concerned a little bit about podcast fade. They say at episode seven or at episode 20, people just kind of drop. And oh, yeah. I have, I have no interest in dropping because I'm honored that anyone would want to be on it. And then when I see the downloads every week and they're growing every week, mm-hmm. but the consistency mm-hmm. of it and knowing that we're making a difference and we're helping people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you know, uh, uh, go ahead.
0: Oh, you've probably seen, you know, I'm the fraud hashtag queen on LinkedIn and Mm -hmm. and other things. But um, the hashtag sharing is caring. And we wouldn't have met each other if I don't think we had been each giving a lot of content.
1: Right. Absolutely. That's the absolute truth. Um, I think that a podcast has to be uh, informational, inspirational and all meaning people want all three things. And I try to deliver on that. I know you do too. And uh, you're right. 90% of podcasts go into oblivion after a couple several months. And it could be for various reasons. I like think the biggest reason is I think a lot of co- podcasts not um, off board the, uh, the production aspect of the work. Now you mentioned that you have someone helping you with the production. I have somebody, me with my production. And that has been a lifesaver for me, absolute lifesaver. So, uh, but uh, as long as you're to your audience and you're genuine with um, what you want to try to get across, and if you really care about your topic, now you care about it, I care about my topic. If it was disingenuous for either one of us, we'd be just a couple talking heads. And there's no, and, and people would see through that immediately or hear through that immediately. You know what I'm saying? So I, I find that um, if you like who you're talking to and you really are interested in what they have to say, then you're just a listener like they are and you learn. And let me tell you what it's done for me and I'm sure what it's doing for you in the short time period that you're doing it is you're slowly realizing that you're becoming somewhat of an influencer in the industry. And that, uh, by having these podcasts, uh, you're getting some more gravitas and that by having more gravitas, people are more willing then to become on your podcast. Uh, and it's just a, it's a self-perpetuating cycle. And I think it's something that I, I find that I'm really enjoying a a great deal that people are now reaching out to me, uh, to get onto my podcast. I'm like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So you're, you're known as the PI coach. And I will tell Mm -hmm. you, I'm a little, um, I was a little late to that because I think I tried to get the PI coach.com a long time ago. And I think you had it.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Actually, somebody, somebody had something very, very similar. And that's why I had to put the in there, the PI coach. So somebody had PI coach.com. So I put the V in there and uh, I wasn't about to pay somebody in Cleveland, Ohio, a, a gazillion dollars to get a domain name when I could just do something very similar. Um, I found that after 24 years of investigations, private investigations, uh, I found that I had probably made every mistake possible in the marketing or growth, growing my businesses over the years. And uh, through the various pivots I had, I was able to. Uh, learn from a lot of my mistakes and then grow. But I also changed uh, my own approach that my mindset went from being an investigator who owned a business to a business person that did investigations. And when that change took place, it just opened my eyes to more of an opportunity to expand my business and be able to grow my customer base and be able to give them better better service because I was thinking more of them rather than the kind of cases that I'd be working. So, um, so the coaching part uh, came uh, several years ago after I wrote four books on the subject, um, how to launch your private investigations business, uh, 90 days to lift off, how to market your private investigations business, less than five hours a week, really, how to boost your private investigations business, business. Business, make $1,000 every working day. And then the three of them are combined into how to rocket your private investigations business to complete series. So the books were written to be books as a business card for private investigation coaching. I built the website um, and uh, started reaching out to uh, people and offered them free training just so that they could get, you know, I could get the clunkiness out of the relationship between coach and and um, client. And once I did that, I I went uh, live with it back in uh, January of 19. And uh, my afternoons get booked up pretty quickly. So except for Fridays, that's when I podcast. So
0: (laughs) yeah, no, I think it's so important. I actually did coach you, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago. um, Because I didn't know that someone like, well, and you weren't around back then as this, as a business model, but it is so much about the mindset because I, I think at the time I was looking for a mentor and I thought a mentor was a coach and it's not, no. it's such a big difference. And when I did the program through Coach You, I, I was like, I don't need a PI coach. I need a mindset coach. For me, I needed a mm. mindset coach much more than I needed a PI coach. Um, okay. But I love how you have done SI, so much SIU work. Um, this is a silly mm-hmm. question. Did you watch the TV show *Leverage* with Timothy Hutton?
1: Sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh! And did you like it? I did. I liked. I liked the fact that you know he's uh, like a thinking man's uh, A team. Yes. Yeah, yes. You know, and uh, you know, he had each of his people have their own uh, little quirks and idiosyncrasies, but to, together those band of misfits pull together a great, great um, heist for a good reason. I guess that's a good way of saying it. Right. And I uh, always enjoyed that show. Yes.
0: Yeah. That so. was filmed in Portland. A lot of it was filmed in Portland, my okay. hometown, but um, a Timothy Hutton also looks like my brother. So that's kind of funny. <laughs> um, but I, the, the whole idea, he was this great SIU investigator and his company basically, you know, declined his kids experimental treatment. And then he ends up kind of being a little bit of an SIU Robin Hood, but only for good causes. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, I really liked that. Um, I think the SIU work is really fascinating, because a lot of people, especially now in pandemic, um, uh, think that insurance fraud doesn't cost. Mm. And you have seen firsthand exactly how much insurance fraud does cost.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for real. Um, One of my first cases back in the day uh, was a uh, where I worked on a massive uh, um, staged accident ring and it went through the entire city of Philadelphia and uh, one law firm Uh, office manager and uh, a cadre of runners in the various cities, uh, sections of Philadelphia had this massive uh, accident ring where they just made up fictitious accidents. Well, what that did was it drove up the uh, insurance rates throughout not only Philadelphia, but the surrounding counties to like double what other metropolitan areas were dealing with because simply because uh, the fraud was so rampant and so expensive. When that when that uh, fraud ring was cracked, the uh, the number of suspicious claims or the number of uh, fraudulent bodily injury claims plummeted, and then there was a tremendous savings to the insurance carriers that they also passed on to the premium payers, the people out there. But you also had in other situations where you had people. And I I can't tell you how many times I've seen this, where I talked to Legitimately injured, legitimately injured uh, parties to an automobile accident who un, did not un, realize that they were entering into a whiplash mill. An attorney whose only purpose was to, you know, to get the settlement or to, you know, to somehow uh, squeeze out x number of dollars out of their out of their uh, accident. They would. This attorney would then send them to doctors that uh, we're only interested in the number of treatments necessary to uh, make, the, make the claim possible so that they get a decent settlement, never with an idea towards actually treating the people for their injuries. And I can't tell you the number of times I've talked to people who received their percentage of the, of the settlement after, and then, and then in some states, they had to subtract out the, those same inflated medical bills to be, to receive a paltry settlement, and they still had a bad back, or they still could not do this, or they still had some sort of other limitation that didn't allow them to do it. And they 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 did not get the proper attorney, and they did not get the proper treatment, and now they're left with a pit a, a, a minuscule amount of money for what truly was a lot more pain and suffering and they never got the proper treatment to go with it. Uh, Does this resonate with any of the things that you've seen yourself?
0: So one of my first task force cases when I was a special agent from uh, U.S. Customs in Seattle was a staged accident auto ring. And it was so funny because I came home from a search warrant at a chiropractor's office one day, and I was the filthiest almost of any search warrants I had ever done and I was in a chiropractor's office mm. because it was just it was so incredibly filthy I can't imagine anyone that actually got any treatments there because we were having to you know sit on the floors and go through boxes and I was completely filthy and that is not what you think of for a real chiropractor at all
1: That's true I, I got chiropractor stories but not for another day for another day. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. my father-in-law was a neurosurgeon. He's got lots of chiropractor stories. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, and I'm not, I'm not damning uh, a chiropractic chiropractic. I, in fact, I just had an adjustment maybe uh, two and a half hours ago. Yeah. Great chiropractor. But in terms of a uh, fraud case from many, many years ago, I got some stories for you. So oh, yeah. anyhow, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's what uh, makes fraud fun is the stories.
1: Absolutely. No, I, and actually, um. Uh, I wrote another book. Oh, my God. I wrote books. It's called Mugshots, My Favorite Detective Stories. And in there, I uh, detail eight short stories and eight vignettes. And um, some of the stories have to deal with insurance fraud. Uh, They have to deal with the the RICO case I was just telling you about because it was a RICO. Also a a boat, mysterious disappearance of a boat, which was uh, I I called that uh, double trouble, and then I had, the very first one I uh, talk about is uh, a uh, heavy piece of equipment, uh, an excavator that got swallowed up in a uh, mud hole. And the only problem with that was, is that it happened the, the week before the policy was <laughs> reinstated. So minor point,
0: Yeah, you know, not and a big deal. We'll have links to, I'm going to say all of your books,
1: Okay, um, which thank
0: you. are a lot, because so here, one of my questions on my sort of like synopsis is, if you were going to write a book, what would it be about? Well, you if, book number what eight? Are you on eight, nine, like?
1: Uh, yeah, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10. Okay. Ten. Yeah. And, and you I, probably I have,
0: have it percolating.
1: I have one percolating. Yes, I do.
0: Yeah. So uh,
1: I have, a, a, I, I started also writing fiction a few years ago. And uh, I based uh, some of my fiction writing off of uh, real life experience. My very first uh, fiction book, uh, Odessa, well, no, it's not Odessa. My very first fiction book was Fantasy Baseball, which was when I got my writing bug. And it's set in Philadelphia and writing Pennsylvania. But uh, the, the, the crime thriller I wrote, Odessa on the Delaware, was based upon the Russian mob. And in my days back as a fraud investigator back in Philadelphia, I had a deal with the Russian mob uh, in terms of uh, how they were uh, very, very uh, good uh, at, at the very uh low, high payout, but low chance of getting caught world that we know of white like collar crime and insurance fraud. So yeah. And um, they also were uh, causing people um, in the Philadelphia community um, to commit insurance fraud because of their extortion claims. They had to make they had a, they not extortion, protection rackets. They were uh, having a protection racket. And if they didn't come up with the money, well, um, some of these Russian mobsters were very good with ice picks. Oh, yeah, yeah I know. And to see a few of those on CCTV tapes, you yeah, you just say, no, 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 thank you. But uh, yeah, they were vicious, uh, vicious animals back in the day. So what better than to start my first uh, crime thriller off with uh, I, I titled it Odessa on the Delaware with a nod to uh, where a lot of our friends come from Odessa, which was actually in the Ukraine, and I said it in Philadelphia, hence Odessa on the Delaware. So, I love that.
0: I love that. And I love that. So, you know, we think as investigators, we write boring reports. But here, like I've written a book recently, you've written, you know, many, many books, and it's a creative outlet.
1: Sure, absolutely, no doubt. Uh, I, I, I talk about this a couple of times to several people, uh, mostly in the writing community, where uh, I'll sit down on a um, cold February night like this past year with, uh, to start writing and I'll brew a cup of tea and I'll sit down. And then, uh, a little while later I'll reach for the tea and it's cold. And I'm saying, why is this cold? I just brewed it. I looked up at the clock and it was five hours later. So five hours go by, like in a blink of an eye when you're writing, you know? And so, um, both fiction or nonfiction, you know, but I, I like to joke that I've been writing fiction for a long time. At least my clients would tell me that. So, (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, that's good. That is good. Um, if you could turn back to your 18-year-old self, yeah, what would you say?
1: Uh, I would say um, you went for it and you got it.
0: Love you know, that. Another, I,
1: I did because uh, it goes back just a little bit earlier than that. I worked at a gas station in my local town and they had a contract with the police department. So the police department would come in at shift change to gas up. And of course, you know, back in the day, it was so long ago, they actually wiped washed windshields and checked the oil and did that sort of thing. And I did that. And I got talking to these cops and, you know, and I'd always put the the, the gas on slow so that I could really hear all the stories and I would take my time doing the windshields and what have you, but they would just tell me these wonderful stories. And I just said to myself someday I'm going to do that. And, I know that I got hooked when I, they, they, this gibberish would come across our radio, but they understood it because it was that the number talk, you know, forty-six-three had a ten-seventeen at blah blah blah, and off they went and screaming out of the parking lot. And I'd be standing there with my squeegee in my hand, saying, "Oh, I got to do that." So I went to college for criminology, and I came home and I actually ended up working in that same. Police department uh, that I was, you know, a kid, you know, gassing their cars up four years earlier, and uh, but I found that it was kind of stifling working in a 14 square mile, 14,000 person population town, and with limited advancement possibilities, I just said, you know, there's something else out there for me, and I always wanted to be a detective. So very shortly thereafter, I started becoming an investigator and SIU investigator or you know private investigator and for 44 years I've just continued to hone my craft as an investigator so looking back to the 18 year old kid he had the dream and it's just now that I've I've fulfilled it and I there might have been there's a few regrets along the way but obviously you know I'm very very happy with my career and I got to do all the things I wanted to do
0: and I think you've influenced way more people than, than the fourteen thousand you know yeah. population town. So I think you've really influenced a lot more people.
1: Thank you, appreciate that.
0: That's a good thing. So, what are some of the resources that have helped you along the way?
1: Uh, mostly anything and everything I could lay my hands on regarding uh, investigative interviewing. Uh, I got to tell you that. Uh, uh, Mm, I I went through uh, Avanome Sapir's course on uh, on uh, the oh God I just lost it my my brain just went uh, but uh, scientific uh, interrogation LSI Laboratory of Scientific Interrogation that was one uh, I took both the uh, advanced and the uh, The introductory and the advanced course directly by Avinom Sapir, S A P I R. It's really polygrapher that studies uh, written language and how it can, uh, how you can break it apart and you can see whether or not there's truthfulness or signs of deception. Some people will argue it; it's not empirically challenged, you know, by scientific paper. But when he takes a, a class and separates it in half and tells half the class to write out a fake story about what they did the day before and the other half to tell a, a true story about what they did the day before. And he gives the fake ones to the all the people that wrote the fake and he gives the true ones to all the people that wrote the true ones and not missed, not missed one of them out of a class of 50 hard boiled detectives. And then also tells some people about some interesting things that they were leaving out of their true statements. You knew you had, me, you had me at hello at that point. So maybe it's not um, scientifically uh, challenged by, uh, by whatever, but his stuff is, is just fantastic. Uh, I'd also say that if you can grab anything you possibly can on OSINT, and I know that uh, Cynthia Hetherington and the Hetherington Group does a wonderful job. They give out a tremendous amount of free content. Oh, yeah. uh, on OSINT. I, I would I would say that that's the way of the future, honestly. Um, I think that there's a lot of stuff that is now, uh, because we're more of a digital world, we've gone from a paper world that became microfiche that then got copied into digital. We're now more digital, uh, especially with social media. I think that's you know, that's another thing that I think you should grab a hold of. Uh, I am always a big fan of Uh, learning more about your craft. Uh, I think that uh, when I learned uh, about insurance fraud, I had some really great teachers that taught me about policy construction, policy language, so that uh, terms and conditions and exclusions became uh, almost second nature to me. And I could then uh, understand better the motive for why somebody might be trying to create a fraud or take a completely fictitious event never happened and create it for profit or change the language of the claim so that it would meet the terms and conditions of the policy. And that was the other thing that I always thought was uh, very helpful. So if you're going to be specializing in, in an area, know what it is, whether it's insurance, understand policy language claim and the claims apparatus and how it works. I had I a had time as a claims manager, claims examiner, claims adjuster. So I've been on all levels of that. So I understood, you know, the claims mechanism. I had good training as I went to policy formation and language, uh, criminal defense. Uh, you have to understand, you know, the laws by which you operate, what's what the elements of the crime are. I'm just giving that out as an example. Uh, I think that uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of great things happening in the surveillance world with insurance fraud, uh, or fraud generally. I think uh, there's a lot of uh, great new products that can help uh, investigators get better at honing in their time and effort uh, to to figure out exactly what's going on in that claim, so that they can give a legitimate report back to the to the company, uh, provided that the, the, the methods that you're using are legal and ethical within the jurisdiction that you're in. Cause not every jurisdiction allows, you know, different things to, to work like GPS tracking for one. So, uh, I would say that's another thing too, but, uh, I, I believe that if you are uh, continuing to be a student and you continue to have, be curious, uh, a lot of the learning can be done, um, through uh, message boards, I guess we call them listservs these days, you know, uh, locating assets, locating people, huge in our business, huge. And the, the better you get at it, the more uh, tools you have in the toolbox, the more arrows you have in your quiver, uh, the better you're at it to doing that. But if I, had to, if I had to lay it out for one thing, just one thing, it would be investigative interviewing and get as good as you can at that. Um, there's a friend of mine, uh, his name's Jonathan Davison. He operates uh, an organization here in the United States called PEACE uh, through Forensic Interview Solutions. Fantastic uh, trainer of uh, investigative interviewing. If you want to learn how to do a complete, thorough investigation where you've, uh, you're have you incorporating uh, the tenets of uh, cognitive interviewing, uh, as taught by uh, Ed, Ed uh, G. Edward Geiselman and Ronald Fisher, you can't beat that. I mean, just sol- rock solid foundational um, investigative interviewing stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So incredibly important. And, you know, this goes to my hashtag honest people steal. Um, a lot of these people that are committing these crimes and they are crimes have made a bad choice. Are they a bad person? Mm-mm. Yeah. In the world that we travel in, I mean, when I was a special agent, yes, I arrested typical bad guys. But in the sort of fraud, white collar, pink collar world, these are people that for a long time have been, quote, good people. And then something causes them to cross that line. They found their price that you know they think they do. And enabled to talk to them, and my sort of soapbox is empathy. You can't yeah. go in and hammer on someone. And I think, you know, that's probably one of, <laughs> you just, you can't do it. It doesn't work. No, like yelling no. At your
1: kids. <laughs> no. Um, you know, I, I would like to think when I proffered a claims withdrawal to an individual who I caught dead to rights in committing an insurance fraud, that my attitude was all of this can stop right here with this. You know, uh, not required to report this to the law enforcement community. Understand that your policy will get canceled. You have to go somewhere else. But basically, by you know signing this document, this ends the matter. It's done with. It's gone, and you and 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 it's it gets put into a file and it's over with now. Uh, now, now some companies are mandatory reporters for insurance fraud, and they have, might have different rules. But I knew that at the time when I was able to do that, I was able to effectuate a claims withdrawal to uh, mitigate all of that fear with them, and, and be able to talk about their why they chose to do it the way they chose to do it, and say this was this was their escape hatch. You know, now it meant that. They no longer had a claim for a bad back. They no longer had a claim for a slip and fall. They no longer had a claim for that food poisoning the 15th time in the last six years, um, you know, or, or the stolen car or the torched car, right? Or, uh, or house, but essentially uh, it gave them an out away from the situation as opposed to, you know, threatening them with, which I couldn't do anyway. With uh, you know uh, law enforcement because you know, first of all it's unethical and secondly it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I think I think being ethical number one and having empathy. Uh, I mean, you know, you and I, knock on wood, have not had to make that decision. But this is the other thing about like insurance fraud is most everyone has insurance. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, um, you know, some people can't imagine committing uh, a Ponzi scheme because they don't have access, but everyone, most everyone has access to some type of insurance. Right. So it just kind of, you know, with the fraud triangle, everyone has the opportunity.
1: Mm -hmm. No, no doubt about it. Uh, And it can be as, as simple as trying to bury a deductible up to, um, inflating or, or, uh, yeah, inflating or exaggerating a claim to cover, uh, to, to, to cover them for a loss that they had of items that may not have been covered or have, uh, a minimal value in terms of, uh, what the insurance company will pay out versus what they feel that the items worth, you know, and it, or. You're on the highway. You stop, and all of a sudden, you get rear-ended. And the first thing that goes through your mind is, "Oh, it's the low-impact lotto." (laughs) I just, I just (laughs) just won the lotto, right? So then you go through your uh, 36 treatments and uh, physical therapy, and you get your durable goods. And then a year and a half later, well, you know, you're going to get a check, you know, and you haven't even scuffed the bumper. (laughs) yeah Um, we know what we know what that's about yeah
0: well um we're gonna start wrapping it up here we've had covid and we talked briefly about leverage is there any other sort of like fun fraud or criminal shows you've been binging since covid besides you've been writing
1: yeah uh hmm i have found uh that i watched um Kind of sick. <laughs> uh, uh, it's a, a show coming out of the BBC called uh, Luther. And Ooh. the fellow that paid, played Stringer Bell in The Wire.
0: Love
1: uh, that. Um, Idris Elba. Yep. Plays the lead in this book, um, in this, uh, where he plays a, uh, a London detective. And it, it gets a little a little out there. Now, that being said, probably my favorite show uh, is Better Call Saul.
0: (laughs) I haven't watched, I admit, I haven't watched it, but my husband, oh my gosh. Okay. I recognize that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Better (laughs) Call call Saul. Uh, He puts the criminal and criminal defense attorney. Yeah,
0: (laughs) that is absolutely true. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And right yeah. now you guys can't see it, but John is showing, as I call it, hashtag fraud treasures. And he's showing yeah. a great um, mug, Better Call Saul. Oh, my God. That is yeah. delightful. Oh, God. Yeah.
1: And then I have one of his, one of the T-shirts that uh, it's in um, New Mexico. It's a New Mexico license plate, and it's a vanity plate. Lawyer up. Ugh. Yeah, but no, I, I love uh, that, of course. Every other episode of Better Call Saul has some aspect of a fraud in it somewhere, somehow, and uh, whether he's perpetrating it or he's uh, trying to sniff it out, one way or the other. But it's a fantastically written—I don't know if I used the word right—fantastically. It's it's written fantastically. It's fantastic, and yeah. uh, it's just it's great and great acting, and it's just a wonderful and there's enough. There's enough seasons of it out there that you can binge watch on that. Uh, I haven't started watching Bosch yet uh, because oh, I'm, I liked
0: it.
1: Well, I'm a big fan of the books. And yeah. I saw I saw Titus Woolver playing Bosch. And I said, eh, and they updated it. It made him a, uh, a Gulf War vet versus a Vietnam War vet. And I just thought, eh.
0: oh, I enjoy it. I like, I like
1: the book. I like the books better. I'm just, yeah. you know, call me a purist. Uh, let's see what else. Have uh, you watched Lupin? What?
0: Lupin. L U P I N. Oh no. my gosh, you got to get it. Okay, is everyone it? out there, it is. Um, oh, I can't remember. Omar Sai, I think his name. Hmm. He. It's set in France, and it's a uh, oh, Lupin. You got to watch it. It's only like five episodes, and they're going to drop the next five. I think in July. So good. So okay. fast moving. And there's the there's the little bit of the Robin Hood going on there. Okay. Underdog. So be sure and watch Lupin and let me know how you like it. I've
1: heard something about this. I've heard this. Uh, yeah. And that he seems to be always one step ahead of the bumbling cops all the time. Oh, yes. Yeah. OK. But
0: there's one cop that's not bumbling. There's always one.
1: OK, good. Uh, try to think what else. Um, I spend more time reading these days than and watching uh and i you know i'm a big uh crime fiction nut as you can imagine uh but uh, uh i follow uh, a podcast with uh sheila weisaki uh yeah. with without warning yeah and that, that's an excellent podcast and that's true crime and that's where she's actually uh knee deep in the weeds with a with an actual unsolved case or a poorly solved case And I would recommend that highly to your uh, listeners as well. That's really good stuff. And it's well-produced as well. So, yeah.
0: There's so much great content out there. There's just so much. Too much. Well, yeah, too much. Yeah, too much. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to put all your books, your podcasts, everything in the show notes. What haven't I asked you that you want to get out to the audience?
1: Mm. Well, I, I think that I've had a wonderful career. Uh, And that the the unique thing about whether it's fraud investigation or other types of uh, private investigation is that it's varied, it's different, it's unique, nothing the same every day. I get to go outside, meet interesting people, uh, travel around. Well, through COVID, it's been a little bit dicey. Uh, where I'd meet people for statements in a Starbucks. I'm now meeting them for statements in the parking lot of Starbucks, but where we sit in our individual cars, cop to car, car, to car. And I sit with the uh, uh, iPad on my lap while I, and, and my portable printer in, on, in the seat next to me. But other than that, I would say that, um, I, I would say anybody that wants to get into the, the business of, of um, fraud investigation, private investigation, You won't go wrong in terms of having something different and unique every day. You will be challenged. Uh, Your your mental uh, processes will always be uh, uh, looking for the clues or the leads that uh, bring you to the next phase of your investigation. And you can have a wonderful career. And I'm proof of that. 44 years uh, from when I left the police department, Well, it'll be 44, it's 43 right now since I left the police department. And I I don't regret many days. Honestly, I don't. Few, you know, when it was 10 degrees out and I had, you know, on a Saturday and I had to go into a bad neighborhood, but, you know, hey, it's part of the job. But otherwise, no regrets, so.
0: That is wonderful, truly. And you know what, the people that um, are listen to the podcast and are guests on the podcast, I think they all say that, that this is, it's a wonderful career. Yeah, it has its, you know, as I'm going to say, trough moments, but Mm -hmm. the ups are really, really good. And especially when in the world that we live in now with technology and being able to connect with so many people, so many experts, it just makes it even more interesting, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, it's not getting any less complicated, uh, that's for sure. Um, digital has its issues. Uh, garbage in, garbage out. You know, uh, I let me look at a, an original document with the dog-eared pages and the, the scribbles in the in the in the margins and the sticky notes that nobody was supposed to see. Doesn't happen in the digital world these days. So I mean, it's uh, a little bit different. Talking to people is still uh, an art, and I think it's always going to be an art, and it's going to separate a lot of investigators from just data punchers. So the better you can get at uh, doing interviews, I think the, the more that you'll, and the more that you look at it as an art and a science, uh, and rather than just, oh, I got to take another statement, or, oh, I got to take a recorded st- interview. No, no the more that you look at it as being a way of how do I help this person go into their memory banks and retrieve all the information that I need for my case. And, uh, I think that's, if you go in with that kind of attitude, I think that's, uh, that's where you come out of it being a professional as opposed to just a lead runner. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, John. And I, I, I'm a little scared to be on your podcast,
1: but thank you so much. No, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cream puff. Don't worry about me. Thank you so much, Kelly. I do appreciate the time you had me on today. These wonderful questions. I haven't asked, answered these questions in many, many years. So it was nice that I got a chance to talk about it. So thank you again.
0: John is great, and I consider myself and the audience to be very lucky to have gotten great investigation, writing, and business advice. His podcasts are regulars for me, and again, I am always honored to be on the other side of the microphone, so to speak. Be sure and reach out to him and check out his podcasts and his books. They're in the show notes. Thank you again, and see you next week.